right, as we go into our time of message, if you guys need it, um, hey, Tim, can you get the lights just a little bit? Thank you, brother. Um, back in the box by that table, we have copies of the ESV and the CSB. I preach out of the CSB. So if you guys need a Bible to follow along, you like a paper Bible, we have those back there for you to use. Also back on that table um, is note-taking, and on the back is questions and stuff. Um, as my, one of my faithful friends in the room likes to point out, and we all should know by now, my grammar and my spelling is horrendous. Um, you guys get to just see that raw. We fix it for the social media post. And when I say we, someone else does because my, I can't read my own mistakes. That um, all looks great to me. So, um, but I hope even though you guys have the paper and you're, you're reading it and you see it, I hope the gist still speaks. I hope the, the reality of it still comes true to you and the points that we're making and all that stuff. So if you don't have one of those and you need it, um, you can go up and get that at that time. Um, it's, it's like I was mentioning DJ and I was mentioning Teresa and what happened to their sons. And it's funny because uh, this September, our serve night is going to look a little different. Um, so for the fourth week that we have, the fourth Thursday is our serve night. And Pastor Doug, who's our membership care and volunteer pastor, um, he was probably the goofy guy you see running around on a Sunday morning. Um, he is just an amazing story and a gift from God and just shows the grace of God through his life. And so he's actually going to be coming in and sharing his testimony with us. Um, and then after that, I'm going to come up and kind of share from Scripture how to concisely give our testimony and how to be confident in giving our testimony. And then we're actually going to practice writing our story out um, because the heartbeat behind that night is, yeah, we can, again, we can do service projects and you don't have to have a heart after God to go be nice to people. But man, when we have a heart that's wanting to be nice out of strictly just the love of God and the grace of God, like that service hits way different. And your, your motive behind that service is vastly different. And so a lot of you guys have voiced, we, we want to just learn how to give testimony. Like how do we give this in the right way? And I was always told one of the best things is your testimony is not the gospel. And your testimony is also not to glorify sin. And I think a lot of us can get wrapped up in that. And just kind of a cool story that popped into my head is when Teresa sent out an email to all of us about what happened to her son, the one that was hit when he was running. I just said, I'm praying, and I know that experience all too well. And she called me into her office. I thought I was in trouble, honestly, at first, because it was over email. She's like, can you meet me tomorrow in office? And I was like, oh, no. So I went, and she simply just asked, like, what do, you, like, what do you mean? And this is one of the things that I'm still learning as I'm new to the church. We've only been here since February, but, you know, part of my testimony is I was hit by a drunk driver on a bicycle, uh, and I couldn't walk for a year and a half. And and so I was able to share that with her, and, and, and it was able to share a common hope with her, right? Like, God extremely wrapped her son around to the point where all he had was a fractured vertebrae. It could have been way worse. You know, you're running with no protection, and they're in a car completely not protected, right? And so it was just cool to see even that part of my testimony was able to bring her comfort. You know, we were able to pray over a common ground and have a common experience. And so that's just a small snippet and plug for that. Um, but then the week after, because I never look at calendars right either, I guess, uh, there's five Thursdays in, in this month, not four. Uh, so that fifth Thursday, Pastor Tom's actually going to be coming back in um, and teaching us, all of us, how to be like small group leaders. Like what we do after the sermon, when you guys sit around the tables and digest the questions and the points and talk it out with each other, I think some of us can almost be shy or tentative or we don't know exactly how to speak up or, you know, the confidence that or how to direct conversation. So it's not like we always have like one person at each table who's like, this is what we're going to do. You guys organically do it. And that's what I love. 
So I want to give all of you the confidence that be able to put in more and not sit at the table going, I'm terrified, but sit at the table and go, I'm excited to help be a part. And so that's kind of the end of our month. But tonight we're going to be in Genesis, not 49 like I have it opened. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. Um, and the Tower of Babylon. So um, last week we talked about, or not last week, two weeks ago we talked about uh, Noah's Ark. So we're not too far after that in our timeline of creation and the narrative of these historical books. Um, but we see, again, if we, if we remember from last time with Noah and the ark, after they rested, right, back into creation, the floodwaters have subsided. Noah, uh, Noah was given the command to be fruitful and multiply, to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. They were given that original garden command again. And so we see that they were called to spread out across the face of the earth. Adam and Eve were called to cultivate the garden to make it global, right, to cover the earth. And so, unfortunately, uh, kind of some of the passages we skipped over, we see not too long after that that uh, Noah reached dry land. He built an altar to God, all great things. He was giving glory to God, and, and God established the, the beautiful covenant, which we now see now during stormy weather as we see the beautiful rainbows, and we know it's not anything else but the promise that God made for us, correct? And so we see that being established, and then lo and behold, Noah planted a vineyard. And then Noah became a man of the earth and drank too much, and he shamed himself with his own family. And so we see Noah literally being given this covenant command, just like Adam and Eve were, and yet immediately fail. You know, disobeyed and, and shunned by his own family and was, and was disgraced in Genesis chapter 9. He gets drunk and he's shamed, and the other sons have to come in and kind of, kind of drag him away from the scenario. But as I'm digging through this, and as we keep going into these stories, I can't help but realize, like, God just keeps drawing me into the correlations between these narratives and even Genesis and the reality of Jesus Christ. And so that is truly my heartbeat with all these messages, is never leaving you guys without that connection to who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. And, and I promise you they're not far-fetched. Hopefully they're not. I, I believe there are connections in Scripture that we'll see. And so I want to walk us through that tonight. But when I ask, and when, and when I ask you to think about, how many of you guys have heard this story probably for years, right? You grew up Sunday school. You've heard this story forever. How many of you guys are like, I've heard this story maybe once or twice. Like, we're brand new, right? So I got saved at 16, right? So I didn't grow up with the, the flannel graphs and the the PowerPoints and the overhead projectors. I didn't, grow, yeah, I didn't grow up with all this. We almost got a flannel graph for the series. I held off. I held off. I'm sure there's one around this church anyway. So, um, <laughs> so um, but when we think of the tower narrative, I think one of the biggest words that came to my mind was unity, right? Because they all came together to build this tower. Pride was a big thing, right? They were very prideful in their unity. I think if any of us have heard the story, we kind of think of those realms. And for me, it made me think about where we're at today in culture, right? Like unity is such a push. We have all these different flags and banners and, and disgracing of flags for the sake of unity. And we have all these things where culture is constantly like, you need to stand for this point, And if you don't, you're causing disunity, right? They're trying to make unity by being more aggressive. I don't know how that works. Didn't work too well in Germany, you know? So I'm just being honest. But the reality is, and I love this saying, and I wrote it down because every time I try to memorize a saying, it just goes horribly wrong, but those who do not know history are destined to what? Repeat it. And I want you to look at the story of the Tower of Babel, and I want you to then com 
like cross that over with where we're at today as a world, where we're at today as a nation. And I want us to see if we can pick up the correlation with these. And so um, I, I see it with humanity, right? Like we see the church. The church is always wanting to champion social justice, right? Equality, all these things that aren't bad in the right lens, but we, we keep them as our foundation and then the church falls, we saw the Presbyterian denom- denomination fell apart. They got tore apart over certain issues. The Methodist church not too long ago was torn to shreds. The Catholic church torn to shreds, which they really didn't have a firm foundation anyways, but we, we will, we'll move past that. I've already did that this summer. But tonight I also want to focus on something that I don't think he's always brought into the story of the tower, right? It's a guy named Nimrod. We always hear it as an insult, but he's actually a biblical person, like we call him you you Nimrod, but uh, I want you to hear the historian Josephus on on Nimrod, and Josephus was a historian about 80 to 90 AD, so he was right there in the midst of it all, and Josephus says this in his book of Antiquity of the Jews, he says this about Nimrod, he says, um, the ancient historian Josephus states of Nimrod, he also said that he would be revenged on God. If he should have a mind to drown the world again, talking about God wanting to flood the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying his forefathers. And that's coming straight from somebody who was there in the midst. He knew he was a Jew. He had the history. He had the lineage. It's not that he was just kind of this outside Fox News anchor just going after it. He was in the midst of it. And it made me again think of this reality of how many people hate God, will refuse the gospel, not think about Jesus Christ because of church hurt. Because they went to a church and they completely wrecked their view of who God is. Or because someone told them the story of this is how I was handled at church. They let the world define God instead of God's word. And that's what Nimrod was doing. We see this from this mentality that he had. He, he saw the narrative of what happened to his forefathers and said, well, that's obviously truth and who God is. I hate him. And I think that gives us a great foundation to now work into as we get into the story. Um, and I think to set it up, we do have to go back one chapter, chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, and kind of break it up a little bit. 8 and 9 say this. It says, Cush, the father of Nimrod, He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there's a few things that we need to kind of of look at in this moment. Uh, We see that he obviously was a mighty man. They repeat it. But he was also a mighty hunter, which correlates into the next part of verses. But when we see, like, before the Lord, I think sometimes we can correlate that to, oh, like, he was a really good hunter for the Lord. Right? Like God blessed him with these gifts and he was a really good hunter. Actually, if you go back to the mentality we just saw, what it says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord is almost as an aggression. Like he was before God. He was standing up to God saying, I am a mighty hunter. I am a mighty ruler. I am a mighty man. I don't need you. And that's where we go into the rest of the uh, verses of 10 through 12. It says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalan, and the land of Sinar. For that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, and then Rohabadoth, Ir, I'm going to butcher half these names, Kala, and then Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, this is a great city. 
And it's super interesting that we get this. And most of the times I would even skip over this because you can't pronounce half the names. You can't even try to read them. You get tongue-tied. But it's vastly important to understand where we're going to with this story. Because if we look, we see Babel is Babylon. So we see Babylon. We see Assyria, which we now know stems from Nimrod's heritage. We also see Nineveh, three massive places in Scripture where God's punishment, God's reconciliation, and God's um, anger were brought forth. These were people who were against God. Babylon and Assyria are massive in the exile, right? Nineveh, the whole book of Jonah, is about Nineveh and their repentance. They weren't just some random nation that Jonah was like, I hate them. There's history. And we now see it just from these passages. And so now we dive into the narrative of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and we open up. And the first verse says this. It says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. This is golden, right? Noah and his people were given the commission to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. How easy is it to get a job done if you all can communicate? It's pretty easy. Or at least you can get the, the message across and you're knowing they're at least hearing it. So this is golden. That's, that's a phenomenal start. They have one language. They're rocking it. They're moving out. They're scattering from the ark landing site, right? Like they're, they're going forth. But then in verse 2, we see, as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Sinar and settled there. So now we know exactly what it means, Sinar. We know who was in control of that city. Nimrod. Thank you, Jeremy. So we see that. But there's also something else that we have to grasp. It says they went and migrated from the east. Well, within the few chapters of Scripture that we've already been given leading up to this story, we know that there's something special about from the east, and it's not special in a good way. Adam and Eve, when they were banished from the garden, God banished them to the east Cain, when God was like, why in the world did you kill your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know what's happening. God punishes him, but also in grace keeps him protected. And yet, where does Cain run to? The east. So when we think about the east, we have to think that there's already this foundation of, of a rebellion against God, of a fleeing from God's presence, from a banishment of, of God and his people. And funny enough, Nimrod in, in the Hebrew means rebel. And so we see all these connections. Noah meant grace. God, by his grace, carried Noah and his family through the flood. Now Nimrod, ruling over Sinar and Babel and, and Assyria and all these places, he was a rebel. He was a mighty man before God in an aggressor type of way. So now we need to kind of go further in. Verses 3 and 4 tell us this. They say, Then they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with it in, the top, in its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Man, here's the golden ticket to the whole story, right? Here's the reality. of I, I love that they say it. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered. They knew what they were doing was wrong. 
They knew what they were wanting to do was going against the command of God. And they said, maybe we should, they didn't say maybe we should repent. Maybe we should not do this. Maybe we should keep moving. They said, no, hurry up. Let's get together. Let's do this really fast before God even understands what's happening. And I don't know how many people they had, so they probably could have built a tower into the sky pretty fast, but you're probably not going to do that in overnight. But they knew, they knew, they understood that this was going against God's plan, against God's command. And when we observe the worldly building materials, right, man-made methods, and then with the premise of building a city and a tower, and I think we get so fixed on the tower that we forget that they actually built a city, right? They, they built a city there where they were supposed to keep moving. They built a city and a tower. And this is because in, old East, like in, the, in the Eastern world back then, these towers, they were called ziggurats, which were places of worship. They were towers made to worship pagan gods, humanistic religions. That's what they created these for. And so we see they tried to create a civilization and a worship method to worship themselves instead of God Almighty. In their pride, they built a whole city and a worship tower for themselves. And they full well knew what they were doing was wrong and yet kept, continued in it anyways. Verse 5. Then the Lord came down and looked over the city and the tower and that the humans were building. Um, again, these are one of those verses where if we read it with the narrative we want, we're like, yeah, see, God doesn't know everything. Oh, see, God was, God was, God was taken by surprise. And when we read it in the right way, right? Like when God was in the garden with Adam and Eve and he said, hey, where are you guys? It's not like he didn't know. He literally created the garden they were in, Cain and Abel. He said, what have you done? And then answered his own question. See, God knows, but what he's showing us is his intimacy towards his creation. He's showing us the intimacy of what's going on on earth, that he's involved, that he's there. He's not just this clock worker who made the clock, set it, and left, or the master chess player who has no idea what's going on but knows pretty well what he's doing. Like, God is sovereign. God is in control, but God is still intimate with us. That is how we view this verse. The Lord came down and looked, to look over the city and the tower the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun... To do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. And I think this is just a continuation of that verse. The verse 5 is really showing us that, that majesty of God, right? Humanity was building this tower to be up in the skies, to create worship for themselves, this pride, and yet it says God had to come down to look and see what they were doing. Because God was still above their pride. God was still above their man-made religion. God was still above their foolishness and their arrogancy. God was greater than the sin that was happening. God, was able, God had to come down to look. If, you, if you're Nimrod and these people, you're like, man, I guess we did a really bad job building this tower pretty high. God still had to come down to look at what they were doing. Not that God was scared or confused, but showing that he is even greater than that. And verse six is really showing us, again, not this heart of confusion or this heart of concern in the sense that they might overpower him, but it's this heart of concern that, man, he gave them a mission. 
He had a relationship with them. He's trying to cultivate that. And yet in our sin, we constantly run away, we disobey, we bunker down, we hide, and we build weird towers in our pride and in our arrogance. And then verse 7 through 9 says this. It says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another in speech. So, that, uh, so from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Man, I love this, because right, we just covered it through and through again from Genesis. God told us to be fruitful and multiply, a, a, a spreading out, with a spreading out in unity, right? We all would have the same mission, the same mindset, the same God that we're working with, the same God that we're in relationship with. We'd be cultivating the earth, right? But then we failed miserably. God reestablishes it again after the flood and says, no longer will I ever flood the earth again. Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Well, then we see miserable failure here again. We got to the point where now we're building weird towers. But here's the beauty of it. The punishment is the will of God actually taking place since we are too sinful to do it. You see, God was like, listen, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to give you love. I want to give you this attention, and I want, to, I want to walk with you. I want to help cultivate what we were supposed to do in the garden with you. And we said, mm, no, we're going to do it on our own terms. We kind of like ourselves. We're pretty prideful. Nimrod's pretty neat. So we're going to build like ziggurats and, and these idols to ourselves and just kind of hope that we can do it before you take notice. And this is why... God's sovereignty is so big in our lives because his ultimate will will be done. Even in the punishment, what was the punishment? He confused their language and then he scattered them. What we were too stubborn to do, God did. But even in that, he gives us a stipulation. Because like we mentioned, it's a lot easier to do a massive project if everyone's understanding of the mission, if everyone's communicating on one level, right? It's a lot harder to accomplish something if all of us in this room, maybe two or three knew the language and then everyone else had a different language. Y'all would be looking at me like I'm crazy. Speaking, I could speak Flemish up here and none of you would understand it and I'd be concerned, why aren't they hearing the message? Because we had different languages. And why did that happen? It's because God was showing them again. It's not yourself that you need to rely on. It's not the idols of your heart that you should be fixed on. It's not the pride of being this unique creation that you should be fixated on. It's a relationship with me. And when you're in unity with me, then things move forward. Then the will will seem like a flowing river and not going against stream. Turn from sin, turn to me, and things tend to work out just a little bit better. And that's why the tower gets its name. A, Babylon, Babel, confused language. But Babylon is the start from there. And that's, that's the tower narrative, right? That's the whole story of prideful humanity built idols to themselves instead of following God's command. So what did God do? He said, you know what? I'm going to further my plan myself, scatter them and confuse their language. And there's some morals in that story that are super great, the Sunday school ones, right? Like don't be prideful, be humble. All great things. But I want to take us a step further. I want to take us over to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 10, um, and I want us to see something very beautiful 
in verses 19 through 25. 19 and 20 open up this way. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, never will human works, good thoughts, good vibes, religious practices and rituals get you back into relationship with God. I don't care whatever religious guru, internet, TikTok celebrity teaches you. There is no methodology or 12-step program to getting right with God. It is understanding this reality that Jesus Christ in his humility where man is prideful and in their pride building these idols up to have security in their whatever they want to think is their salvation, whatever they find hope in, Jesus in his humility gave his own life so that we may live. Jesus laid down and died for us so that we might have life. And in that we have boldness. You want to know where your confidence should come from? Not because you're a mighty man before God. Not because you're so angry that you want to build a tower that the floodwaters can't drown out. Your confidence comes from a fact that you have a Savior who created a way for you to be back in relationship with God. We have a Savior who died on the cross for us and now have that right relationship so that when we surrender our lives to him, he makes us into a new people and in a relationship with God. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We love that part. But we never read 17, which says, for, God, or for Christ did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Why? Because we condemned ourselves from the garden. And we see the fruit of it through, Abraham, or, um, uh, through Noah getting drunk and shaming himself. We see it through Adam and Eve desiring the fruit of the tree and wanting knowledge, and e- and knowledge of good and evil on their own terms. You see, we constantly get the plan from God. We constantly understand what we need to be doing as humanity. And yet we constantly let pride of our own lives take step over that and we, and we fail. And then we wonder, why in the world, God, why would you let us fail? But it's through grace alone, by faith alone, that we are saved. You see, God made a promise when Adam and Eve screwed up. God made a promise that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You see, they knew that there was someone that would come that would stomp out the evil that was constantly riddling our hearts as a people. They had, those, those who in the Old Testament had faith in that had faith in the real salvation. And because of that, they followed God's commands. Because of that, by grace, Noah was saved and brought through the waters. Because of grace, God saves a remnant of his people through and through. And it takes us to 21 and 22, and it says, Since we have a great high priest over the house, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. In Jesus, we now can approach God with full assurance and faith and clean hands and pure hearts. We don't have to try and work to be with God. You don't have to clean yourself up to be before you give your life to Christ. Jesus washes you clean. 
Christ, as our high priest, makes the ultimate sacrifice and now intercedes for us on our behalves. We don't have to build prideful idols in our life to one day ascend into the next level. We now have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father who is there for us. And when we surrender, he makes us born again into him. So we are now seated in Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. You can't do that on your own will, volition, and good works. It's only in Christ that we can do that. And because of that, again, we have now boldness to enter in through the blood of Christ. And 23 through 25 finishes off with this in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let, our, and let us consider one another in order to provoke to love and good works Number, verse 25, never neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. You see, where the people of Nimrod and the cities around him saw that coming together and stirring up on unity, but it was in wicked ways. They came together so they could just deliberately disobey God. Whenever we come together without God in it, it's, it's in a disobedience, it's for the wrong reasons. But when we come together for unity in Christ Jesus, that is when we are in God's will and God's purpose and God's plans. We will never make a temporal difference here in this world, let alone the eternal difference in anyone else's life if we find unity on any, on any other ground. Yes, I know we need politics. Yes, I know we need education systems. Yes, I know we need all these things. But if we would stand on a hill to die about what type of education system I want before I'll stand on a hill to die of the gospel, you need to hear the gospel. I will not die for any political party. But you better believe me, I will risk my whole life to share the gospel with somebody. That is what we now stand on. We are now called to true unity in Jesus alone. We gather to be encouraged in the gospel and his truth. We belong together not to trump God, but to patiently and excitingly wait for the day that he calls us home, whether it's when Jesus Christ comes back or we die. <laughs> But that's why we come together. We don't come together to puff up our own pride. We don't come together to build weird systems that make us feel better about ourselves. We come together to encourage each other that, yes, you go out to a world six days a week instead of coming here, working jobs, going to school, dealing with family problems, knowing that this life is going to get worse and worse and worse. And yet, you get to rest in the fact that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is the closest you will ever be to hell. That is why we meet. That is why we have unity. That is why we come together. Because this world is broken. It is sinful. It is falling apart. No political party, no education system is going to bring it unity, is going to bring it hope, is going to bring it peace. It is the message of Jesus Christ. We saw how they let idolatry and pride ruin and wreck their lives. But we also saw that God in our own sin will still get his will accomplished. We're not, we're not good enough to thwart God's will. I don't want to burst any bubbles in here. And I've realized the more that I study scripture and the more I get to walk with Jesus Christ every day, the more I realize I know nothing. And it is so beautiful to learn from him daily. 
It is so beautiful to dive into his word and be there because what does it do? It tears down every threshold. It tears down every idol that I try to put on my heart every morning I wake up. And it says, Mitch, you go out in the world and you do this with that idol there, you will fail. You will fall and you will fail. But if I approach each day in boldness because of the blood of Christ, then that's where I find unity. That is where we find true hope. That is how even in Christ Jesus we see the reversal of the tower. There's a lot of darkness. God doesn't hide it. That's why I love when people are like, the, the Bible's human written. Yeah, but divinely authored. Do you think humanity would make themselves look this stupid? No, we'd write a book that made us look great. But we have a book that calls us out like no tomorrow and yet says, in grace, God gave us Christ. So take away the idols, take away the pride. Stop finding unity in all these secondary issues in this world. Why? Because we've seen it. In the last four years, we've tried to have rallies on 18 different topics. It's too much to keep up with. Man, if we could just look at each other and go, hey, how you doing, sinner? Hey, great, sinner, how you doing? Great, I'm saved by grace. That is what we need to be talking about. You saved by grace or you not? That's the division that we have in this world. Saved or unsaved. Sinner, repent. Come home. Give your life to Christ. And as we have been doing, I want to give you two key doctrines that we see out of this story. The first one's a doctrine of idolatry, and this is, again, the Mitch definition, so probably the, the passage here has some grammar issues or spelling, but don't look at that. Look at the heartbeat of it. <laughs> this is the premise that man is created for relationship with God. Yet in our sin, we try to fill that void and chasm with earthly and false things. Where God should reign, we let little g gods take the seat and bring us confusion and temporal pleasure. We see it played out today in false religions that bring salvation into the hands of man by work or into practices that make us simply God or good enough that God doesn't have to really change us. Idols are the item, thing, or thought that hold us captive over Jesus. Things that are inherently bad, obviously, are easy to see as idols, like drugs, false religion, self. Things that are neutral can become idols, such as sports, friends, status, and jobs, when we let them trump God. Idolatry is very close to pride. Pride is very close to idolatry. And we saw both of those wrapped up in the tower narrative. But we also saw a different side. We also saw the grace of God played out. Even in his punishment towards these people, God showed grace. Why? Because he showed that he was going to continue to push his will forward. And so the doctrine of grace, not the doctrines of grace, we'll cover that maybe at a different time, but the doctrine of grace. God's grace is the premise that even in our dreadful and dead state, God penetrated through and providentially intervenes in creation for us. Either dead in our sin or alive in Jesus, God's grace is working on us constantly. Grace in its simplest definition is that God gives us what we really do not deserve. And in common grace, God is holding up all creation and fallen man with it. And in irresistible grace, God is calling forth those who will surrender their lives to Jesus. And that scripture that says, yet while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for, you, or for us to create a way for redemption. That is grace in the most simply and powerful means. We suck. Humanity messes up so much. 
I mess up so much. But I have to remember that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I heard recently that uh, there's, there's people who struggle, right, if they even believe if they're saved or not. And so often I think we as the church have failed those people because we look at them and we go, oh, well, you just, you just need to have more faith if you're struggling. You just you got to have more faith. I love, and I'm not just saying that because Martha's here, but I love the analogy that Jeff gives. And he's used it multiple times, but it's this reality of if Martha's out of town and someone walks up to Jeff and is just like, oh, yeah, Martha's visiting her boyfriend. And Jeff's like, no, not true. Well, you must have great faith in your wife. And he says, no, I have a great wife. Oh, man, I should have taken that story and used it with Jess and I, but which I do have a great wife, but I'm going to give Jeff credit. But that's the reality. It's like, we don't have to have more faith. We just have to realize who we put our faith in. We have a great God. We have an ultimate savior. He is the reason we are even gathered here tonight. Hopefully for most of us. And if, if there's someone sitting in this room who has heard this gospel message for the first time, this reality of what Jesus Christ has done, I pray that you come talk to me or someone in this room and, and, and work out what it means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. But where I was getting at with that story is sometimes I think we do a disservice when we tell people who are struggling about their salvation to just have more faith. What we should be doing is saying, that's great. Let that struggle bear fruit. The fact that you're questioning it, the fact that you're struggling with it, that's a good thing. Because someone who's unrepentant, someone who's not living in grace or their heart is now being changed, wouldn't care if they were truly saved or not. But that shows me the Holy Spirit is working. Because again, we don't save ourselves. It's the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. And that's all by God's grace. And I want to finish off with these three points. Follow Jesus, not your heart. We just saw it here in the story again. They followed their heart. They followed their pride. And God came down and said, nope, scattered them. And said, not even that. Here's some different languages. Now I'm one of three people in America who know Flemish. It's great. See, unity with the world is separation from Jesus. I don't care what basis, what voting platform, I don't care what you try to find unity on, I don't care what country club you go to, I don't care what you know weird sports team that you go play on like a Tuesday night with, and you think you have unity there, what cause you stand for. If you're not rooted on Christ Jesus, you will fall. Your pride will kick in, your unity and your idolatry will all fall apart and you'll be left with the reality of, man, I did not put Christ first. Point two is God will accomplish his will. There's more peace and submission than resisting. We see it all through scripture in just the short couple verses in Genesis or passages that we've covered. God will get his will and plan done. And it's a lot more peaceful and a lot more purposeful when we just surrender and say, God, use me. God, use me. You've given me this job, use me. You've given me this school to be at, use me. You've given me this family to be in, use me. He'll reveal his way to you of what needs to be done. 
But when we resist it, we see that it sometimes goes really bad. Look at Jonah. God literally finished giving the command and Jonah was already hiking it, right? Jonah was already running and we saw what he had to go through. And part number three is if we are in Jesus, there is grace even in the pruning and the chastising. Nothing in your life. If it says Romans 8, 28, and I think it's the most un, just incorrectly used verse sometimes, but it says, for God, God works out um, all things for good for those who love him according to his will. You see, we always look at people, whether they're, we don't even know if they're saved or not. We're like, oh, God is working all things together for his good. Okay, but the verse fully says, for those who love him according to his will. I could say, man, listen, I want to be a pastor for five years. I want to write a really successful self-help book, and I want to retire by 40. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the pastoral emphasis is to write a book and, and, be, and get rich and, and retire. So that's a really bad will to follow. Not to say people who write books are bad. Don't get me wrong. But to have the will to say, I'm going to use this platform to get money for myself so I can retire early and not have to do this anymore. It sounds good, but that's all in my own heart. That's pride. That's idolatry for retirement. That's idolatry for money. But man, if I pray, Lord, use me. Use me in this position to preach your word, to preach your truth, knowing that just like Matthew 6 says, he will provide for me and my wife. He'll provide for our future family. He will take care as long as I just take the next step. That's why pastors who are truly faithful and long in, in ministry, you don't hear much about. Because their head is to the ground and they're plugging away and they're going at it. So as we wrap up tonight and as we start these table discussions, I want you guys to, to cling to, to those truths of idolatry and then grace. I want you guys to really read, and I've already been pointed out the, the mess-ups and the questions too, so you don't have to come at me and say, these are funny. Um, bless you. But, but here's where I want to end tonight. I want us to realize tonight that even in the narrative of the tower, even in the Tower of Babylon, we see God's grace overpower all. None of you in this room have done something to the point where God would never forgive you. But I think a lot of it starts with you being able to forgive yourself. We need to learn that if God has forgiven us, you can forgive yourself. And it's actually resistance towards God if we, if we don't give ourselves that forgiveness. I just want to encourage you guys with that because I know that's probably a very hard thing for a lot of us. Learn to forgive yourself and it will give you a whole new perspective on the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, man, <laughs> you are just so good. You're always, always, always going to accomplish what you call into life, Lord. God, you promised redemption and you're, you're going to bring it and we see it come to fruition in Christ. God, we saw that even when this, this wicked entity of Nimrod and his people just allowed self to consume, you came in and wrecked them in grace. And God, I pray you do that to us tonight. Convict us, challenge us, motivate us to just cling to your grace because it is by grace alone through faith alone that we can be saved in Christ. 
God, and not only is the gospel something we should hear at the moment of salvation, but we need to hear it every single day. God, I pray that you convict all of our hearts to set aside the idol of self, the idol of, of pride, that idol that sits in our heart of, man, I'll, I, you know, I just want to relax. I just, I just want to watch TV. I, I just want to wake up and kind of read for a little bit. No, God, when we wake up, we turn and praise you. God, when we're walking through our days and we see our sin flaring up, we turn to you. We don't huddle together and try to just make more sin to cover up the sin that we're struggling with. We expose it, and then in your grace, you grow us from there, Lord. So help us as we dive into the questions tonight. Father, help, help us to just have fruitful conversation around these tables about our pride and about your grace, about the gospel, so that when we leave here tonight, we leave so encouraged that we leave here challenged by you and your truth, Lord, that we don't leave here the same. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for this church that we get to just be at, minister, have fruitful conversations, and hear the gospel preached day in and day out. Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. So as we get to this time, obviously, sit around tables where people are at. If you need the questions, they're back there. Bibles are back there. Um, I always encourage you, sit at a table with people you might not know because you get new perspectives. Um, and me and Jess will be up front like always. If you guys have any questions about the message or any questions about my horrible grammar, um, we can go from there. So.